Well, good morning, church. Pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to grab God's Word, and I want you to go to the very end of the New Testament, to the second, la- to the second to the last book of the Bible, the little one-page letter that we find that's entitled "The Letter or Book of Jude." If you're using a chair Bible, you're going to find our passage on page 1,027. Page 1,027, and for the next four weeks. We are going to embark on a journey studying what many Bible scholars say is the most neglected book in all of the scriptures, this one-page book of Jude. And I believe that while it is short on words, only 461 words to this letter, it is full of awesome truth, and a truth that I think is so vitally important to us as a contemporary congregation living in the 21st century that we find ourselves in. And so with that, we're going to pick up and read from the beginning the first four verses of this book as we look under the heading, Clear Faith for a Blurry World. Clear Faith for a Blurry World. And so we're going to be in Jude 1, and the first four verses go like this, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come as your people into this place knowing that in these last days we have been in a world of blurriness. And that blurriness comes because, Lord, we live in a world that denies our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we've gone to school with that culture, as we have gone to work in that culture, as we have interacted with family and friends who are inundated in that culture, we are reminded that what is different between us and them is our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We know and acknowledge that our world is in the place that it is because it denies that truth. Lord, it is easy to see the evidence of a world that denies that you are their Lord and you are their master when we see bloodshed in our world, where we see nations raging against one another and we see bloodshed of innocence all over our world. We see it in the arguing and fighting that we see in our families and amongst friends We see it in the world where we look at people differently because of the color of their skin. We see this blurriness when we see the world run amok in sensuality. We see it in the world of hypocrisy. We see it, Lord, in churches that go astray and stop teaching your word. We see it so many places. And so we gather as a people at times confused. We're confused, Lord, because we sometimes begin to look at the world and imagine that maybe you are not the Lord and Master. We begin to wonder if you truly are on your throne. 
So remind us today that you are the immortal God, the invisible God, the only wise God. Remind us and move us back to that place of truth and give us the lenses we need to see you clearly as the prophet Isaiah did, high and lifted up, exalted before the angels and praised by all inhabitants of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty who is worthy of all honor and praise. In light of that truth, Lord, now teach us from your word. Remind us that your word transforms. As it transformed Kyle's life, we ask it would transform our lives, and we give you all the glory and honor for what you will do in your word today. And we pray it in the name of King Jesus, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, growing up, I had a vision problem. For many of you, you did not know me as a child, but I had difficulty seeing. All the way up to third grade, I tried to keep this little secret, especially in school, to myself. I had these little things that I would do to make sure I could see the things, like I said, the chalkboard in an earlier service, and I saw a teenager go, what's a chalkboard? (laughs) So the things on the front of the classroom, uh, the old whiteboards, if you will, But I would do everything, sit in the front of the class, take notes from my friends, uh, and, uh, and do anything I could to keep this little secret because I did not want glasses. And I remember the third grade class I was in, my third grade teacher, Mrs. Lynn, pulled me aside right before recess was beginning and says, Tim, I need to talk with you. And she said this, Tim, I think you've got an eyesight issue. I think you might need glasses, and so I'm going to call your mom and dad, and I'm going to have them get you an appointment, because I think it's really starting to impact things. And, and she knew it, and maybe I thought I was really sneaky in the way I was doing it, but, but she said, I see you squinting all the time, even something to this day that I find myself doing, probably because I needed glasses way sooner than I actually got them. And I remember that night at at home, my mom said, hey, Mrs. Lynn called and says she thinks you need glasses, and so we're going to make an appointment. So we make an appointment. I remember sitting in the chair and looking at that eye exam, and I could see the E, and everything else was really, really hard. And I knew that was a problem, because he said, what about the second line? What about the third line? And I'm like, no, I I can't see it. And he said, you know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to talk with your mom, we'll come back and we'll talk about things. It's never good when you go and talk to mom and dad outside the room and then bring them into the room, and they said that day in the third grade, you need glasses. And I remember, first of all, thinking, okay, this isn't that bad. I'm a uh, glass half-full type of guy. You know, I've seen some really great glasses on TV. I'm going to get these designer glasses and all of that. And the doctor said, you listen, your eye problem's a pretty big issue. And so we went to Lens Crafters again. That, that uh, marks me as a certain age. We go to Lens Crafters to get our, our uh, uh, glasses. And I remember I'm standing before the designer glasses, a third grade designer's glasses, and I'm looking, and, and the guy comes over, the jerk that he was, and he says, son, you, you, those aren't the glasses you're going to wear. And he goes over here, and he says, these are the glasses, and my heart sank. <laughs> That's a yearbook picture of me in the third grade. And things got a little better, right? You know, I hated wearing the glasses, but, and the glasses always created issues. I, I was an athlete, and I was an active kid, and the glasses would break, and I would get in trouble, and we'd have to get new glasses, and they were like the old glasses, and, and all of that. 
until I was married and in my 20s. In fact, uh, when I was preaching here as a pastor, I had a, a, just an odd eye injury that took place that sent me to an eye specialist that they had to do surgery to fix my eye issue. And the, the doctor said, hey, we have had huge advancements in eye surgery and we can make you see clearly again. I said, hallelujah, sign me up. And that's exactly what they did. What they did was they put me under surgery to have what is called the LASIK surgery. How many have had LASIK surgery before? Show of hands. Okay, only a couple of you. But LASIK surgery is pretty amazing, all right? They take a chainsaw and they open your eye and they cut, (laughs) they take technology and they cut the lens of the eye open and they flip it open and a laser begins and I remember seeing a light and just a kind of a cool sensation on my eye and it reshaped my eye. Once that was done, it took like 15 seconds in each eye to do it. They put the flap back on, they gauzed it kind of up with some goop and and then they gave me an eye patch to wear uh, on each eye. Went for a while in the room and then went home. Everything was blurry and they said the next day you will see clearly. And brothers and sisters, that next morning, I was ecstatic. I could see things I had never seen before, even with glasses and the brutal contacts that I had to wear. I was so very thankful. I remember driving in the car with Amanda, and I'd say, can you read that sign? Can you read that sign? I can read that like a little kid on Christmas Day. I was so excited. And even to this day, now 24 years After having that surgery done, I still have incredible eyesight. I am ecstatic because I knew what it was like to live in a blurry world and what it's like to see clearly. Christians, I want you to know today, Jude wants to do spiritual eye surgery on us. He wants us to see clearly in the blurry world that we find ourselves living in. And the world that we live in, let's just be honest, is blurrier now than it's been for some time. The lines that we find now uh, are blurred. What once used to be a sin, now we call love. What once was uh, murder, we call now a woman's choice. We go on and on, and down the road, we have things that we declare as one thing, and now it's declared as another. Every line, it seems, seems to be blurring from the truth into air. And Jude addresses this in this second-to-last book of the Bible when he says, church, if you're not careful, you will fall prey to these blurrings. You'll begin to fall prey to the ideas and the knowledge of the world and the thinking and thoughts of the world and the world views that it lays out. And if you're not, if you're not in God's word, if you're not putting on the spiritual lenses that God wants you to have, your world will, will remain blurry. And we will do things and say things and deny things about our Lord and Savior that the Bible says we ought not do. And so this man, Jude, writes. What do we know about this man, Jude? Right from the get-go, he's a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Well, that doesn't help us that much, so we've got to look to the New Testament and understand who this is. Well, we know, first of all, that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a servant, but more importantly here, it's important that we know he's the brother of James. James was one of the leaders of the early church. You see him spoken about in Acts 15 where he takes a prominent role amongst the church, more prominent than Peter, James, and John um, that were the closest of Jesus' associates. And James is a guy who came to the faith later 
and would die a terrible death as one of the first martyrs in this movement called Christianity. Jude describes himself as a brother. Now the scriptures tell us, in fact, that that is the case. In Matthew 13, 55, James's brothers, his three other brothers are named, and Jude is one of them. If we look at it in the midst of chronologically, it would seem that James was the oldest of those brothers and Jude was the youngest. But one thing we learned from Matthew chapter 13 is they had an older half-brother. And that older half-brother is Jesus Christ himself. Now, I know that seems maybe uh, odd to some of us to think that Jesus had brothers and sisters, but the Bible clearly communicates that in a couple different ways. First of all, we know that Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married. We moved to the Christmas story. And we know that the Holy Spirit of God came upon Mary, and what was conceived in her was uh, from the Holy Spirit. Not Joseph, but from the Holy Spirit. And that was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, and he came into this world, and he made his dwelling among us. But what about Mary and Joseph? Well, Mary and Joseph then got married. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that Joseph took Mary to be his wife and that they lived a healthy and and natural life together. And, And in that natural marriage would have been the procreation of children. And we hear about these children when we are told in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus' brothers are at the door wanting to see Jesus. Now, can you imagine for a moment that you, James and Jude, are half-brothers to Jesus Christ, the Son of God? That means you lose every fight. Mom and dad always take your brother's side. I mean, think about this. Your brother's telling you he's the way, the truth, and the life, right? And you just want to wring his neck. It drives you nuts. It's never his fault, right? And they would be honest about that. It was never his fault. He was perfect in all ways. And so it's not going to come as a surprise that Jude and James, for the most of their early lives into adulthood hated Jesus. In fact, when it talks about in Mark chapter 3 that they came to get Jesus, the reason why they come to get Jesus, he's preaching to a crowd and they say, your brothers are here to get you. And it says they came to get him because they thought he was crazy. And so they come to get Jesus because he's become popular and they're afraid his popularity and his craziness is going to get him killed. Well, that's exactly what it does. And James and Jude see, no doubt, and know, no doubt, that their brother was crucified. And he died on that cross. That he was taken from that cross and put into a grave. And Friday night passed, and Saturday night passed, and on that third and glorious day, he was raised from the dead. Listen, I have a dead brother. If he came back alive, you better believe I'm going to believe there's something special about him. That there's something unique about him. And if he said before he died that he was the savior of the world, that he would die and resurrect from the grave on the third day, I would call him my only master and Lord. And that's exactly what Jude and James do. They call him master and Lord. And what we see is, is that Jude is a deeply spiritual man. Can I just tell you what I would do if Jesus was my brother? I'd go around the world wearing this t-shirt. 
I'd say this. I would promote, listen, I'm an important guy. Jesus is my brother. Jesus, I'm close to Jesus, so, so call me for your conferences. Have me speak on your talk shows because I'm someone important. But notice what Jude says about his relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a servant, a doulos, a slave of my half-older brother, Jesus Christ. He is my Lord, it says in verse 4. He is my master, Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And like Jude and like James, we are siblings to Jesus. And what that can cause you to do is become arrogant, to become filled with pride, But Jude and James remind us that what it should cause us to do is to recognize the only role we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ is he is master and we are slave. And so we've got to get that in order so that we can move properly through this life. We've got to start there. Now what do we know about this Jude? Now that we understand his family life, what do we know about his background? We know little about his background. We know that this is written somewhere about 30-some years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. But this is what we know from Jude from his letter. Number one, he is a man of great biblical knowledge. He quotes the Old Testament nine times in 25 verses. He speaks with knowledge of the teaching of the apostles so much so that the book of 1 John and 2 Peter are eerily similar to what he writes, telling us that he knew the gospel that his brother had declared to the apostles. We know he can pack a lot into a little letter, 460 words, and not a word is wasted. He has an uncanny ability to have imagery and prose all over this amazing book. He's pastoral. He calls his recipients beloved three different times. He says they are loved by God. He says that they are loved by him. He is a pastor who is a defender of the faith. He's got courage. And he calls out things that need to be called out. And he shares with them truths that they need to have. And so with these four weeks, what we're going to do is unpack these great truths, and I'm going to do so, doing it a little different this week, and that is I'm going to start at the end of the passage and move our way back to the front of the passage or the beginning of the passage. The first thing that Jude wants us to know is we are in danger, and he asks the question, are we noticing it? Are we noticing it? Notice verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for, the condom, for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What Jude says in verse three is I was wanting to write to you about our common salvation But I can't. And the reason why is circumstances keep me from doing that. And he declares the circumstances that there are some, and he doesn't name them. Maybe he doesn't even know their name. He just knows their teaching. But he says this. There are people who have crept in. They're creepers in my book. My kids used to say, Dad, don't be a creeper. I don't know what it means, but it never sounded very good. 
And so these creepers came in, and I want you to see something. They came in or they crept in unnoticed. The idea here of the word unnoticed is the Greek word parizdio. Parizdio literally means people who came in stealthy. They came in unnoticed, as the text says. They came in while people weren't watching. It speaks of something that happened slowly and yet surely that when you look back, you don't know exactly how it happened. Uh, One writer put it this way, they were like great chess masters. With every benign moving of a pawn, little by little, they were positioning themselves to defeat you. These are the individuals who come. Now, it's no surprise to God. God says, I know them, and I was aware of them, and I have condemned them. They're designated for condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so right away, you think, okay, this book is written to a church. We're in a church. And so the people we need to be on the lookout for are people like you, Tim, people behind a pulpit. But I want you to notice something. Notice that they crept in, which means they were out. They weren't in the church. They were outside of the church. They were ungodly. They weren't preachers. They were ungodly people who had taken the grace of God, living in his world, experiencing his goodness, they had perverted into sensuality. Sensuality is what makes me feel good. So their gospel was, what makes you feel good? And their doctrine was, Jesus isn't God. Well, where do we find these people? Where do we go? I want you to know these creepers in Jude chapter 1 have a different name today. They are influencers and pundits in our vernacular. Influencers and pundits. We live in a world because of the phenomenon of social media that there are preachers, quote unquote preachers, without pulpits. Preaching sermons and messages to massive church audiences, if you will. In fact, one graph shows this about the influencers of our world. I know it's hard to see, but I will tell you, the number one social influencer in our world today is Cristiano Ronaldo. Some of you have never heard of him before. He's a a Latin soccer player. His church, his following, 517 million people. That means 517 million would make him the third largest nation in the world. And every time he talks, every time he posts a picture, every time he speaks on any kind of social comedy, he's a soccer player. But we want to know who he is. We want to know what he does. We want to know his perspective on things. We want to hear his opinions. We want to hear his commentary. We want to wear what he wears. We want to date the people he dates. We want to do the things he does. He influences us. Well, it goes on. Justin Bieber, 455 million. Ariana Grande, 429 million. Selena Gomez, 425 million. Taylor Swift, 361 million. Katy Perry, Rihanna, Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Shakira, J-Lo, Ellen DeGeneres, Barack Obama, Will Smith, Nicki Minaj, Lady Gaga, Miley Cyrus. We can go on and on and on. Millions of people being influenced by these preachers. 
and what I want to do. Listen, not everything they say is evil. Not everything they say may even be wrong. Some of what they do, some of what they say might be benign. But I'm here to ask you this morning, in light of Jude's writings, have their teachings, have their lifestyles, have their opinions, has their worldview influenced you in maybe ways you never knew? The problem with social media and social media and media just as a whole is that it inundates us. It inundates us with its messaging, it inundates us with its lifestyles, it inundates us with its opinions. And for 167 hours of our week, we are inundated and you, the Christ follower, comes into this place and for one hour, I get you to be able to teach God's word to you and I think we're gonna win in this endeavor if I get one hour with you and you get 167 hours with everybody else. And so what Jude is saying is, has opinions and lifestyles and thoughts and doctrines and gospels of others crept into your life unaware? Unaware. Well, the answer is yes. I'll answer it for you. You and I are influenced by these people in more ways than we know. Now, here's the thing. Most of the most... uh, Popular and uh, most followed people in our world are entertainers, musicians, or actors. And so these people are not deep thinkers. These people aren't well read. These people don't have any kind of working theology. The most listened to person in the world today on podcasts is Joe Rogan, a goofball guy that got rich on MMA fighting. And he is listened to as a deep thinker and prominent voice in our world. And many times if you listen to his body, he's shooting off the cuff. He's just telling you what he's thinking. And we gravitate to it. And we say, this is the guy I listen to. How about in politics? We turn on our TVs. We need to know what the world says. Well, I'll listen to my social commentator, my guy, my gal. They're going to tell me what to believe. They're going to tell me how I should act, how I should respond. And for hours on end, we sit in front of a TV. You say, well, I'm not scrolling through my tablet, the old person says. Well, are we sitting on TV, taking it in, taking their opinions, taking their thoughts, taking their ideas, and their thoughts, their ideas become our thoughts and our ideas because we've inundated ourselves. And we're like, where did we get there? I don't know. Well, seven hours of television watching will get you there. So little by little, moment by moment, it happens in music, it happens in movies, it happens in in the arts, it happens everywhere where we've got to be discerning people. We've got to ask the question, this is influencing me. I never turn this thing off. For most of us as followers of Jesus Christ, the first thing we do and the last thing we do at the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night we do is we look at our phones. That's how we start our day, that's how we finish our day, and I can assure you, you're not looking at the voicemails that you received. You're going through social media, you're going through news feeds, and you're getting information, and little by little, you have no idea. Can I just tell you this? 
that which entertains one generation will be what the next generation embraces. And so my word isn't to the young people to say, how dare you guys screwed this all up. It's for my generation because much of the things that now are being embraced entertained us. We laughed about it. We scoffed about it. We snickered and make jokes about it. And now all of a sudden it's serious because it's in our world and people really believe that's how we should live. And we're like, wait a minute, what happened? Well, influencers little by little crept in and they changed the viewpoints and the thinking of the world and what was entertaining for one generation has become embraced by another generation. We're in danger, Christian. Are we noticing it? Well, what are we to do? Well, listen, what we're to do is get on social media and scream and yell like our hair's on fire and tell everybody how sinful they are and how holy we are, right? Don't do that. That's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do first and foremost is what he says in verse three. We have a duty. What's our duty? We're in danger. What's our duty? Our duty is to do something And God's asking us to do it right now. He says this. He says in verse three, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing, urging, coercing, anything that I need to do to get your attention. This is important stuff. I need you, notice what he says, to contend. That word literally is to agonize, to give it your all. It was spoken of an athlete, a runner, who would run to the finish line with every ounce of energy he had left until he was completely and utterly spent. Exert all your energy on that, he says. It was written of uh, soldiers who knew that in the military realm, in the battlefield, it was life or death. So you exerted everything you had. You threw everything at it because you knew if you didn't, you'd be dead. This is why we honor this week veterans, because we recognize that they leave it all out there. It's a matter of life and death for them, so we honor them and respect them, and we celebrate them. Why? Because they contended. It was an agonizing thing. It was a grueling task that they were a part of, and this is what God is calling us to through Jude. He's telling us, I need you to contend, to fight for the faith, not your faith, Not my faith, the faith. That faith, that corporate faith, is the totality of what we hold dear. The totality of all that Jesus said and Jesus did. It's the totality of all that we are and all that God is and all that has merged us back together to be in the family of God. It is the totality of all that we believe and hold dear to. We are to contend, we are to fight, we are to agonize for that faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints. What is that? Jude is talking about this book. He's saying we gotta fight for this book. We gotta fight for this book and it's gonna be in a way that you don't think. We don't need to fight for this book to be in every hotel room. We don't need to fight for this book to be in our schools. We don't need to fight for this book to be in the hands of sinners. That's not what Jude says. Jude says we need to contend that this book becomes our glasses for a blurry world. We need this book to become the lens 
by which we funnel everything through. And the problem is our world doesn't see this book as that. And so as we look to the world, we are reminded by people, by entertainers, by all of these influencers, that we're God. When Jude says they deny the Lord Jesus Christ, the only master, well then who becomes master? Who becomes Lord? We do. And sensuality, listen, sensuality is a word that says, I'm God, therefore I should be pleased. So when you see sensuality, I want you to know it's because I'm master, I'm king. And if I'm king and I'm master, then people should serve me. People should please me. And as king and master of this world, I declare that I should be pleasured at all times and in all ways through all things. And that's the unbelieving world's doctrine. You're in charge, therefore the world is your platter. Do with it what you will, when you will, how you will. It's all up to you. And you're like, but, but wait a minute, where's truth? Where's truth? Don't we have some truth? Don't we have something? And we hear in our world, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and and it doesn't make any sense. How did that happen? When you take the word of God out of the equation of how you find truth, your worldview changes dramatically. A shameless plug for my theology class, one of the things we've been talking about as we look at bad theology this year is, how do we go about finding good theology? And I've, over the years, introduced this concept to our people here at the church, what I call the stage of truth. And the stage of truth is just like this, a stage. And and in the drama world, the things that happen on the front of the stage are most important, and the things in the back are secondary. They're important, but they're just not as important as what's happening on the front of the stage. And the issue with the stage of truth is we all have, believers and non-believers, a stage of truth. And the question is, what are we going to funnel our truth through and at the end of that process declare something to be truth or error? Before you on the screen is the world's stage of truth, emotion and experience. So how does a person come to their truth? How do I feel about it, and does it make me happy? How do I feel about it, and does it make me happy? The world says, how do I come to truth? I come to truth through those two things, my emotions and my experience. And so when we talk in the world of identity, my emotion and my experience are going to rule the day. When we talk in the world of sexuality, my emotions and experience are going to rule the day. When issues or struggles come and I need to respond, my response will happen through experience and emotion. This is a lousy stage of truth. This doesn't make any sense. But this is how the world is determining what is right and what is not. I've told the church, this is our stage of truth. Our stage of truth says, yes, emotion and experience, they are valid in some ways. But we need to determine if they're valid, and here's why. The Bible says that Tim's heart is deceitfully sick, who can understand it? 
So right off the bat, my experience and my emotions are flawed. They are touched by sin. They are impacted by sin. And I'm not even sure I can trust them. And so what I got to do is I got to ask, okay, just because I'm feeling something doesn't mean it's truth. So I got to look at general revelation. What's general revelation? It's God's created order. In another word, we could say it's science. What does science tell us? This is why this whole idea of gender and identity uh, is really earth-shattering because what we have done is we've said we can't even trust science anymore because we say, well, DNA says, no, it doesn't. I say because I feel this way. I say because I've experienced happiness by doing these things. Who cares what my DNA strands say? Who cares what my chromosomes say? That's irrelevant. Take that off the stage of truth. It's not science. Well, what does my brain say? Reason. What does the world say? What does the church say in past? We've had 2,000 years of Christianity. Do they have anything to say about it? And so we add these things to the statements of truth. And so whatever I believe, whatever I want to pursue, I've got to start funneling through things that God has put in order. And notice at the front of the stage, my friends, is the lens of all lenses, God's word. And so what I got to do is I got to say, okay, what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, these emotions, these identities, these thoughts, these philosophies, I've got to funnel them through and I've got to ask at the very end of it all, what does God have to say? What does God have to say? Jude is telling us that it's not our job, listen to me, to try to convince the world to pursue the Bible. It's not our job to get on soapboxes and try to judge people into believing this book. Our job is to contend to put this book as our lens and as our final authority in every decision we make. So Christian, I'm talking to you and I'm asking, are you on your phone more than you're in this book? Are you watching TV more than you are in this book? Are you listening to podcasts more than you are in this book? Are you listening to music more than you are in this book? If that's the case, good, bad, or ugly, you're being influenced by a great many things that aren't this book. And you wonder why that which we enjoyed and entertained with one day now has come to the foot of the church or the door of the church the other day because we've given up this book and we've allowed ourselves to be God. We have believed the lies that denied Jesus Christ. And for the sake of sensuality and the sake of our good, we've said, God, get off the throne. That's my seat. And some of you, you're unaware of it. You're unaware of it. You've got me tuned out already. And because of the joy of having that phone there, you got people thinking, oh, it looks like I'm, I'm studying the Bible with it. No, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm scrolling through. I'm looking at that Instagram feed, that X file. I'm looking at Facebook, and I'm being influenced by all sorts of things. You can't even make it one hour to allow the Word of God to have an impact in your life. We are in danger, and we have a duty to fight that this book becomes our everything. And the reason why it's our everything is because Jesus wrote this for us and he gave it to us as a way for us to know who he is. 
that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we've got to believe that, and we've got to pursue that, and we've got to fight for that. Now, we've got a choice to make, and the choice comes down to this. We're going to be one of two people as we approach this book of Jude, and I'll close our time. We need to approach it with this idea. There's dichotomies that is contrasting that goes on between two things. So some of you are saying, ah, Pastor Tim, it's okay. I can keep watching that. I can keep listening to that. I can, I'll just maybe cut back a little bit, but these things are important. we got another election coming up, and we need to make sure we're in the know. Or we need to, man, my friends listen to this, so I want to make sure I listen to this, and even the garbage that comes because I got to be somewhat relevant with my friends. So I'll just tone it down a little bit. Jude says you can't do that. Jude says you're either with us or you're against us. Either you are with God or you're doing something else opposing God. He does this numerous times. He says either you're with God or the devil, verse 1 and verse 8. He talks about the difference between angels and demons in verse 6 and 14. He talks about those in the church and those in the world in verses 19 and 20. He talks about people with the Spirit and people without the Spirit in verses 19 and 20 as well. He separates the saints from the ungodly in verse 3 and verse 4. He talks about loving God in verse 10 and blaspheming God in verse 21. He talks about salvation in verse 3 and condemnation in verse 4. Do you see? You cannot ride the fence. You're either with them or you're not. You're either following God or following the influencers. And contending means I'm gonna do the hard things to win the battle. And so in this dichotomy of either in or out, with him or not, God closes this time and he says, I want you to know who you are as a Christ follower. He says, we've got definition. We have definition. God's defined for us who we are. Are we living it? To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I know living in this world is hard. I know it's difficult to be in the minority. I know it's hard to have a different worldview. But I want to remind you who you are. You are called by God before the foundations of the world. God had his eyes on you. Before you were ever brought into this world, God placed his affection upon you. I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it. But if God says it, that settles it. And he called us into this relationship and that calling, I want you to know what that calling, it's just like Jesus Christ walking up to the grave of Lazarus and saying, come forth. Jesus came into this world and he called you and I by name and we came out of the grave and you know what he said when we came out of the grave? You are beloved by God the Father. You are loved. But I sinned. It don't matter. I love you, and I demonstrated my love for you in this. While you were a sinner, I died for you. And Jesus has shown us his love and his affection, and it says that now we are kept. What happens when we take the glasses off? What happens when we fall into sin? We are kept by God himself through Jesus Christ. And here's this dichotomy that is given. Jude says we are kept in Jesus Christ. And in verse 6 he says the demons are kept in the prison cells of hell. The same security we have that the demons are behind lock and key is the same keeping that Jesus does for us till the judgment day. 
Nothing can separate us from the hands of God. Nothing can move us away from the love of God. Nothing can snatch us out of God's hand. Why? Because as we live this life, church, mercy and peace and love are being multiplied to us. He is showering us with the mercy and peace and love that we need. And so it is an invitation. It's an invitation for us to be influenced by the one who loves us, who has shown us mercy, and who brings us peace. Would you allow that Jesus Christ to influence you this week? Would you allow that Jesus Christ to show you your calling, to show you how much you're loved and kept Would you allow that Jesus Christ to fill your time? Would you allow that Jesus Christ to be what you wake up to and what you go to bed to? Would you allow that Jesus Christ to form every decision and every thought and every response that you have? Will you allow Jesus to be the only influencer that matters? This is what Jude wants to teach us. And this is what he wants to declare to us. And I pray that you and I both We'll take what he says and apply it to our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for these opening verses. And I pray you would do a work in my life. I'm influenced by so many things. I'm entertained by so many things. And Lord, you've brought entertainment into this world. You've brought these things for our good. And so I don't want to demonize it and take away the intrinsic value that's there. So Lord, as people that are in the world, but not of the world, I ask you'd give us discerning eyes and that you would allow us to contend for that that gospel that saved us and now sanctifies us and that we would look at what we're doing, what's coming in and what's going out of our lives and we would ask as the authoritative voice in our lives that God's word would lead us and guide us to every good thing you want for us. And that we would say no to the ungodly things of this world. For our good and for your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.